Welcome to the Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. And this week, we're doing something a little bit different, Eric, and we have a special guest with us, F. Paul Driscoll, who is the editor-in-chief of Opera News magazine, and he is in New York City. Welcome, F. Paul. Thank you very much. We'd like to start off by asking some general questions about uh, opera and the, the state of opera. What would you say is the current state of the art form? I think the current state of the art form is quite good. I think that the repertory, especially in the United States, of new work is the envy of the rest of the world. I think that the United States has quite an active composing scene. More and more companies and more and more audiences are committing to new work, and that's a great way of renewing the art form. The second half of that is what state is the business in, and I think the opera business, the business of presenting opera, is a lot less sure-footed. I think we're looking at companies trying to reach audiences in a different way, facing the fact that the subscription model, which dominated ticket sales in arts organizations in the United States, that subscription model is not going to come back, and more and more focus is uh, spent on single ticket sales and event marketing, and putting... um, opera outside the opera house, being nimble in the way um, opera is presented and the way audiences are reached. And yet we're just coming to the end of a year in which we've seen some big scares, actually, with some major opera companies in the United States. I'm thinking specifically of New York City Opera and San Diego, and uh, there have been others. I I don't recall a year like that (laughs) in any time in, in recent history. Is there anything that you can attribute that to? I think what you're looking at in general, and I don't mean to be flip about it, is that financial crisis, which every industry in this country is facing, has a way of uncovering the people who are built to last and the people who aren't built to last. And I think in in both of those cases, certainly New York City Opera had been in difficult financial circumstances for many, many years before the final collapse. Some people date the beginning of their problems back to the move to Lincoln Center, others to the 1980s, others to the 1990s. They were having severe difficulties long before Gerard Mortier was hired, long before um, the current board composition was what it was. And it's unfortunate that New York does not have that as as a resource and as a company anymore. But I think that that was a long time coming and people refused to believe how bad the situation was until it was too late. And yet there is a New York City opera renaissance. Yes. They are supposed to to come back online in 2015. Is that not right? I think that's the idea. We will reserve comment until we see how successful they are. (laughs) You believe it when you see it, huh? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, San Diego is is obviously a different case, and I think a very encouraging one because... That was a case of a board and a management wanting to shut down a company and a community refusing to believe that this was a viable option within the city of San Diego. So that was something that the people brought back, and I hope that they're around for many years to come. Let's talk about some of the uh, the rising stars and the new artists that uh, you have seen uh, come onto the scene recently that you think have a, uh, a stellar career ahead of them? 
Okay, um, I'll start with a soprano, Brenda Ray, that's R-A-E. She's an American, trained at Juilliard, and she's been resident in Germany for a number of years. She's had big success uh, in Santa Fe in the past couple of seasons. She did uh, Don Pasquale and a, a double bill of Mozart's Impresario and Stravinsky's Rossignol. Last year she was in Traviata. But she's going to be coming to Seattle Opera in February in the title role of Handel's Semele. Oh. She's a sensational coloratura, very attractive woman, moves like a dream, and there's something about her on stage that's like nobody else. I think when you look at an artist and are trying to judge whether or not he or she will have a measure of success, there are variables that no one can see from the outside. You have no idea what someone's work habits or temperament or you know what circumstances life is going to bring. You can't take out a crystal ball and predict that someone's going to be a star. But in this young lady's case, she's not like anybody I've ever seen before. She doesn't remind me of anybody else. It's a very unique and arresting gift, the way she combines movement and uh, dramatic acuity and brilliant coloratura skills. In um, the Traviata I saw a couple of years ago, she was stepping into a production that uh, had been created for Natalie Desay. She could not be more different than Desay was as Violetta, but she was equally valid, and I think a really good bet I think, for a name that we'll be hearing for a while. And the Handel um, opera that she's doing in Seattle, I think, would be a terrific vehicle for her. She's sharing the stage with Stephanie Blythe, as Juno I know, but Semele is the title character, and it's a, a wonderful, sexy libretto by Congreve with music by Handel. So I think it's a, a sure bet that she'll do very well. Um, someone else I'm very intrigued by, I'll give you two more. Amanda Majeski, who's an American soprano, who was supposed to make her Met debut in December, but had that debut date moved up by the Met to opening night of the season uh, in a brand new production of Nozze de Figaro. She was the Countess. I watched her in smaller theaters. I saw her at Chicago Opera Theater a couple of years ago at Opera Theater St. Louis. She's also been in the program at Lyric Opera of Chicago. She's a native of uh, Illinois and a wonderful singer, a wonderful, imaginative, passionate, risk-taking artist on stage. And she responded to this incredibly pressure-filled situation of a brand new production, opening night with James Levine, conducting in God and every critic in the universe watching her and I thought she responded with a great deal of grace and I went back and heard her again later in the run and she gets stronger every night. I think that she's terrific. Another gentleman that I like very much is named Matthew Worth who is an American baritone who was at Manhattan School of Music and at Juilliard and he's doing the lead in a new opera based on the Manchurian Candidate. This is at Minnesota Opera, and that's an opera that is written by Kevin Putz, who had great success a few years ago with an opera called Silent Night that's been done in several theaters in America and at the Wexford Festival in Ireland. And Manchurian Candidate is an espionage-slash-counter-espionage story that's set in the Cold War, and everyone's looking at this opera because it's a, a sophomore effort from Putz. Everyone wants to see if he can do as well as he did the first time, but also Matthew has the central role and he's done quite a bit of new work. He was in the opera based on the John 
Shanley play uh, Doubt a few years ago. He played the priest who's accused of um, molestation. But he's got a wonderful voice, great stage presence, great acting chops, and I think he's typical of the best of the American artists that are coming up now. They have to learn to sing in so many different languages and perform in so many different styles and being able to move back and forth from music, theater to opera. I think he has got a really, really bright future in front of him. You you have a special section of the magazine, the soundbite section, that is devoted to exactly that. You know, showcasing the the brightest of the of the up and coming. Liam Bonner, I know from from the Houston Grand Opera Studio, was was in there uh, not too long ago, and just recently you had Julia Bullock, who not long after I read about her in your magazine, all of a sudden I'm listening to her sing somewhere on uh, the Michael Tilson Thomas West Side Story, and just blew me away. Is is that an editorial meeting to de- determine who gets that spot? Actually, no. We all participate uh, to a degree in the selection, but it's a little bit like tagging birds. <laughs> I mean, you, you see someone uh, in a school performance or in a small studio performance, whether in New York or some someplace else, and this person seems interesting, that they've got a really fresh take on a particular piece of music or a fresh performing style or Obviously, there's a, a got to be talent there, but talent's an accident. You know, you're born with talent the way you're born with red hair or blue eyes. I think what's interesting about someone is someone can take a great talent and make a great success. Other people can take a small talent and make a great success through dint of hard work and breaks and whatnot. So we'll watch someone for a couple of years and then decide based on what work they've got coming up at what theater whether or not it's... Um, worth tagging and someone who's typical of this particular method even though it's rather imprecise there was a young tenor who recorded in Europe for a label called Capriccio and one of the record critics said uh, they thought he was uh, quite an interesting voice and had um, done very well on on recordings of operas like Dry Wunsch which is not a, a, a piece that most people have heard so we decided to do a sound bites on him when he was making his uh, American opera debut, which was in 2001. He was Casio in Otello at Lyric Opera of Chicago, and his name is Jonas Kaufman. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, you know who he is now. He, that, Never heard of him. <laughs> but this was literally the first piece that had been done on him in an American magazine, and he, of course no one becomes a star playing Casio, now do they? <laughs> Certainly he did, and uh, we had him on the cover not long after that. We've had him on the cover uh, twice since then, and he was a recipient of an Opera News Award a couple of years ago, but he's a sensational artist. How often, F. Paul, do you get out of New York to see uh, opera in the hinterland, so to speak? <laughs> well, it's not. I don't think of it as the hinterlands. I, I learned so much more than the average opera goer does by by stepping away from my hometown. I'm, I'm actually born in New York City and I started going to the opera here at the Met in New York City Opera. But I've been to Chicago twice this season. Uh, I was in Los Angeles in August and I'll go to Los Angeles again in February. I hope to get to San Francisco uh, in the spring and I hope to get to Texas. I haven't been to Houston in, in a while. But I've seen some terrific performances there, terrific performances pretty much everywhere. I try to go to Santa Fe and to St. Louis every year. And St. Louis and Santa Fe have 
such an extraordinary young, number of young artists, it's a great place to see people you know, on the rise. Matthew Worth and Amanda Majeski, who were two of the names I just mentioned, were Jardine Young Artists at Opera Theatre of St. Louis. And there have been quite a few other people who've come up through the ranks there and, and uh, had great success. But it's wonderful to see them in that particular theater, just as it's wonderful to see what goes on at Santa Fe in the context of a festival where one can see four or five operas at once. Not to mention those unique performance venues. Yes, exactly. I mean, Santa Fe is so extraordinary to to sit there and uh, see the mountains in the distance. And I tell everyone a couple of years ago, I, whenever they did um, the Magic Flute production by Tim Albury, and the three ladies said, the queen is coming, and then you saw this flash of lightning in the mountains miles away. And I thought, no set designer or lighting designer could have planned an effect like that. But it's so extraordinary to have outdoors be part of that particular performance. F. Paul, what about opera elsewhere in the world? I guess primarily Europe. How are things over there? And how does the opera scene in Europe, for example, compare to here in the U.S.? Well, you can look at it, um, I think there are two primary points of reference for me. One is the question of new repertory. And as I said before, the amount of American work which is produced in American theater is the envy of opera companies in the rest of the world. You don't have as many new German operas or new French operas or new Italian operas being written by contemporary composers. And that's not to say that they're not done at all, and there's certainly a great number of great productions that are done all over Europe and, and theaters elsewhere. But the system of funding opera is clearly very different in Europe than it is in the United States. The United States has traditionally depended much more on donor contributions and ticket sales than the European model has. And obviously, in Europe, that's changing as governments are less able to fund uh, theaters. You know, you look at a country like Italy, which you look at some of the performers now who are passing from the scene, like Magda Olivero, who just died and was over 100 years old. But at the beginning of her career, she was able to move from theater to theater to theater in Italy. And all of these theaters had full seasons. They were running up, you know, for months at a time. And now most of the theaters, the buildings are still there, but they're not filled because it's too expensive to run them, operate them, do a full season. There are exceptions, for example, like uh, La Scala, which is a different funding system. But that is something which is imperiled. Um, France, obviously, especially in Paris, is, is a lot healthier for the moment. And London seems to be doing very well between English National Opera and the Royal Opera House Covent Garden. Germany is a little bit, in some ways, a little bit closer to um, Italy in that they have this huge number of theaters, and some of them have seasons much longer than the others. Berlin, as I'm sure you know, has got three major companies, uh, one of which is in temporary quarters now, but that's been a regular question asked as to whether or not Berlin really needs three opera companies, and uh, that's something that is re-examined periodically in terms of who's going to give money for what. But I think that uh, you have systems such as England where people move from theater to theater and you've got one big theater in London, English National Opera, which does performances in English and uses a lot of Anglophone artists and then obviously Covent Garden is an international house and uses people from all over the world. 
that's a different system than is working in the Scandinavian countries or in um, a lot of Germany where people are on fest contracts and they're there for a full season and have an engagement at an opera house which is like a regular job. They're under contract to do X number of roles in the course of a season and it's fantastic training. The young lady that I mentioned earlier, um, Brenda Ray, was a fest contract artist in Frankfurt and I believe Amanda Majeski was in Dresden. Same thing, they go and they cover a number of roles, they sing a number of roles and they get incredible experience and incredible training across the course of uh, a season. On a, on a related note, what is your take on um, what seems to be a dearth of nationalistic voice types? For instance, you know, where are the next great Italian spinto sopranos and tenors or the next great French lyric? Are the we-can-do-everything Americans kind of driving them out of existence? Um, driving them out of what? Well, there used to be a, a generation or so ago you had you know, Morella Freni and Renata Scotto, and before that, Tibaldi and, and uh, Antonietta Stella. And, and there, were always, there were always spinto sopranos who handled that, you know, the middle period, Verdi and Puccini. Uh, and there, don't, there doesn't seem to be anybody coming up behind uh, Morella Freni or you might, you know, think Barbara Fritoli. There doesn't seem to be anybody coming up behind them from, from Italy. You know, it seems to be Americans like Sandra Radvanovsky stepping into the to fill that void rather than someone, you know, who's a native Italian speaker. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, I think part of it is that in some places, like Italy, for example, there was so much opera for so long. There was an enormous tradition which involved the handing off of a, a style, stylistic points, from one singer to another, that you'd have someone step off the stage as a singer and be connected to an academy as a teacher. And also you had, the, the more opportunities there are to listen, the more opportunities there are to learn. And as you have fewer and fewer performances in a particular place, I think that you have people learning only in a classroom or only from listening to recordings or whatever, and the tradition becomes a lot less vital. I think since the, um, the Second World War, there has been, as you mentioned, um, a rise of, for lack of a better term, the international school, where you have singers, as happens in America, where they're trained to do everything or expected to do a little bit of Italian, a little bit of German, a little bit of French, and they don't have specialists. Companies like um, Lyric Opera of Chicago, which was referred to as La Scala West for a long time, always had Italian artists in Italian repertoire. And the Met certainly did um, in the years before World War II. But I think that it's so intimately connected and so much of the art form is passed hand to hand. It's like anything else that involves, for lack of a better word, artisans. In other words, a master teacher has to have pupils and a, pu and, and a master student has to have a master teacher. And I think that as fewer people work as teachers, people used to step off the stage earlier and become teachers earlier, I think it become, that the tradition becomes much less vital. And in Italy, I think now, you know, if people are sitting around wondering whether or not the art form itself is going to survive or if the theaters are going to close, it's not surprising that there are fewer Italians coming up within the Italian repertoire. It doesn't mean that Verdi is any less important or that Puccini is any less great. It's just that the opportunities to hear that within their own country are fewer and fewer. 
And do you think that there, that perhaps you know these artists, instead of staying in Italy and ha- and passing the baton in Italy, um, you know perhaps they're coming over here. That's some of it. I mean, there was a a, a woman who was a um, artist agent for many years named Taya Disbecker who was here in New York, and she was fond of saying that the the greatest influence on singing in America was Adolf Hitler mm-hmm. because there had been so many people who had left Europe and they all came to conservatories in the United States so that what would normally have been passed hand-to-hand in Dresden or in Leipzig or in Berlin or Hamburg or whatever, those singers were here in the United States teaching at Juilliard or the Manhattan School of Music or Indiana University or Carnegie Tech and, and whatever else. I mean, it was a huge exit. And then also happened with um, orchestral players, with symphonic conductors, with instrumental soloists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I do think that um, you know you have people who sing longer and sing different repertoire, and then they retire to someplace in the sun. They don't go to a conservatory and uh, teach like Carmen Malis did, or some of the other people that were part of that wonderful handoff of the the generation of um, people who worked with Puccini who were teaching. I mean, uh, someone like Carmen Malis was was active enough as a performer and then went right into teaching, and her prize pupil was um, Tibaldi. And that's a very short strand, you know, to go from when Puccini was brand new to someone like Tibaldi receiving that wisdom, or even someone like Toscanini. You know, you figure how long that career was here in the United States, and that's a direct connection to Verdi. Let me ask you, with your uh, your crystal ball, F. Paul, new operas. You've mentioned the many new operas that are being written here in the U.S. When you think of those contemporary pieces, which of those do you think will stand the test of time? In 50 years, which of what's being written today will be in the standard rep? Um, I don't know. I think that in terms of... 50 years from now, I don't know what the rest of the world is going to be like 50 years from now. I think 50 years ago, you would be hard-pressed to find someone that would have been able to predict that Rusalka would be done every 15 minutes. And, you know, because it's a Czech opera, it's a fairy tale, etc., etc., but 50 years ago, perhaps, we weren't looking at the fact that in 2014, 2015, we'd be hungry for fairy tales, and that's why Rusalka is so popular. So I think that um, looking at the pieces that are coming up now, I wonder if something like Moby Dick, which is connected to a 19th century novel and perhaps has that timeless feel, might last a little bit longer than something which is more connected to contemporary social scene or politics. But that's very difficult to say. And I think that you know I hear it and you hear it now in 2014, in a way that an audience 50 years from now won't hear it. Certainly, um, the received wisdom in the 19th century was that a composer like Meyerbeer was going to be in the repertory of opera houses forever. And that's not um, the the case now. So that who knows where the rest of music will be. I was really surprised, pleasantly surprised, a couple of years ago when the Met did Satyagraha, and that was a huge hit with younger people who were not really aware of Philip Glass as a quote-unquote new composer. I mean, this was being applauded by young men and women who were 
the proper age to be Philip Glass's children or grandchildren. But that was appealing to a brand new audience because that Glassian musical language, I think, had kind of seeped into the culture and they were more familiar with it, perhaps, than people were when those operas first opened. And the same thing with John Adams. I think that the issues that are raised in a piece like Dr. Atomic, especially in the, the monologue that um, is at the end of the first act, I don't know what's going to still appeal to people 50 years from now. Is it going to be Adams's music, or is it going to be the way he set the John Donne text, or is that issue of having a secret and not being able, you know, not using that information or using that information for the greater good of mankind, is that still going to be something that's examined? And uh, before we let you go, which is your favorite opera? I don't have one. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly don't. Not even a top five? Oh, I get asked this question all the time and then get tripped up by it. But I, <laughs> I, I do think that there, there are some operas that I can sit through and always find something to like, no matter how the performance is going. Um, so Traviata would fall in that category for sure. The Dialogues of the Carmelites, uh, Don Carlo, whatever version is used in whatever length, um, Valkyrie. I think for me for a, uh, a Wagner opera um, and then the fifth one I would leave open I think for something I mean I've all, I, I enjoy something like Peter Grimes very much I love Vanessa Ballad of Baby Doe but it's it's hard to pick an opera it's not like having five favorite books five favorite operas means you know maybe five favorite opera performances and that would be impossible to, to pick but I think, as I said, Traviata is something that I always come back to because I, there's always something good about it. I can sit there and admire um, Verdi's genius, even if other things on stage are not going quite as well. F. Paul Driscoll is Editor-in-Chief of Opera News. F. Paul, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you both very much. Well, that's this week's Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. Thank you for listening.